Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Would you please welcome Columbia recording artist, Bob Dylan. Welcome, everyone out there. I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And I'm Steve. And this is Never Ending Stories, a podcast about Bob Dylan and the Never Ending Tour. Uh, we're probably not going to start every episode like this uh, in the future, uh, but this is the first one, so we're still figuring out what the fuck we're even doing. Yeah, this is us playing uh, Maggie's Farm, you know, <laughs> just because why not? You know, exactly. People know the song. I don't, I don't know what, you're, what you guys are talking about, because for me, it, this is like uh, any... Anything else that we'd ever do, like, just like Bob Dylan, I'm sure is like, yeah, I'm just doing the repertoire. I'm I'm going out on stage. It doesn't matter that this time I'm wearing a leather vest and smoking a cigarette, and I look like I haven't slept in five months. But I'm just gonna do my thing. <laughs> we are we are just getting up there, getting out there, and talking into the computer with one another. But I think it is gonna be a little. Uh, I don't know. I think there is gonna be some different kind of. Uh, energy here, uh, maybe just based on mindset alone. But uh, I feel I feel a little bit like Bob going up on stage at Newport. To be honest, uh, everyone is going to be really pissed at us, and you know, hollering and throwing tomatoes and calling us bad words. Is, it, and, is uh, what you're gonna... saying like that? See, but, but that's like is having Steve along. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Stephen is the electric guitar for us. I, I don't think it's Newport. I think it's like we're like Bob stepping out in 1988. And we've mm-hmm. got G.E. Smith mm-hmm. at the side. And, uh, you know, we've been touring with uh, The Grateful Dead and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That hasn't really worked out. It's the whole arena rock thing. We're not feeling that. So we are uh, stripping it back. We're bringing it all back home. Bring it all back will. home. <laughs> I'm just going to be dropping Bob Dylan puns in this uh, show, by the way. Because I uh, feel like there's so many Bob Dylan puns yeah. uh, that Absolutely. I don't get a chance to, uh, to drop. And uh, I just want you guys to say, don't think twice it's all right <laughs> that you do that. But no, I think, you know, we're all, we're, we're pairing it back. We're going out. We're uh, trying to rediscover our mojo here. And hopefully we're going to find it I think over so. the course of the show. Listen, I mean, when you got threes, this is, this is literally Bob going from twos to threes the yeah. same way that Three. we're doing this. We have, Evan and I have gone from two to, to three, three. Yeah. we're rediscovering the magic of recording an auditory art by going to an odd number, uh, and, which is the three of us. And we got to figure out our chemistry too, because I got to say, we are under rehearsed. That's right. On this tour, we have not rehearsed. We're going out on on the stage. You know, we might be stepping on each other's cues here. The, the arrangements might be a little sloppy at first, but uh, I think over time, people are going to come to praise the mistakes that we make early on. It's what it's all about. The, the, yeah. the discordant plonking on uh, the piano that Bob does uh, you know, for the last 20 years of his live performances, that's going to be what you're going to get from the Never Ending Stories podcast. Uh, but people are going to come to love that. And, and can I just say, too, that it's so great 
uh, to get into this because we're going to be focusing on the Neverending Tour, which of course you know again starts in 1988. Here we are in 2022, so it's 34 years of the Neverending Tour. About to, that's right. Well, by the time this post will be 2023, the, 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 the mm-hmm. 35th year of the Neverending Tour, and uh, it's amazing because you know I just did a Grateful Dead podcast. You sure uh, did. Listening to uh, all of the Dix Picks records and the entire career of the Grateful Dead was 30 years. Mm. And this is just part of Bob Dylan's career that we're talking about. And you know, we'll probably go into like the pre-Neverending Tour portion of his touring life at some point. But... No, we definitely will. We're going to have yeah, to do sure. a 74 show with you at some point, Stephen. The, the yeah. cocaine band arena rock tour. Yeah, and you can talk about how... Dylan playing with the with the band is dad rock, and uh, you know we can have an argument <laughs> exactly. about that. We can get back into that. <laughs> It'll be great, but um, it's just amazing that we're just talking about part of Bob Dylan's career, but it's so long and rich. You know, there's just so much material because people might be like, "Oh, never any tour." Like, how much is there to talk about? There is a lot to talk about. Oh boy, yeah, truly. Uh, <sighs> I think that when we were deciding what show to talk about first. We batted around a few different ideas, and uh, it turns out that uh, I think just by sheer uh, coincidence and sort of fate inspiring, uh, we got time out of mind on the mind. We got tomb on the brain, and uh, it's because of the the release, obviously, of the uh, bootleg series, volume 17. Mm -hmm. Uh, Liner notes written by NeverEnding Story's own podcast host Stephen Hyden. Yes. Run don't so, walk to your local bobdylan.com to purchase the $270 vinyl set. Or or the, <laughs> or the CD version which is like $130 and it will sound better than the vinyl version, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's going to be a lot easier to to uh you, you can put in your minivan too. When you move, it'll be less cumbersome to move the box set if you get the CD version. The show that we ended up actually selecting to talk about it, it turns out not only does it tie in with the Fragments release, the release of Fragments. That, is Fragments. that how you're pronouncing it? Um, no, I, I don't know. I'm just playing around. Um, it's uh, also literally the anniversary, as we record this, of this little run of 25 shows. years uh, to the day, exactly. Just for a little context, you know, it's 1997. Uh, Time Out of Mind has been out for about two, three months at this point. came out fall 97. Uh, and Bob embarked, you know, he toured all over the world uh, throughout the year of 1997. Towards the end of the year, embarked on a little club run across the United States uh, from East Coast to West Coast. And things wrapped up here out in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, and deliberately played all of these teeny tiny little venues. Uh, you know, anyone who's listening who's familiar with the El Rey that's got to have what, like a five hundred person cap or something, right? I think it's um, nine hundred. Is it nine hundred? Okay. In any case, for the L-ray shows. way smaller than what Bob Dylan, especially in nineteen ninety seven, what Bob Dylan could have been packing. Uh, but for whatever reason, he wanted to get into these small venues uh, and really kind of you know inhabit the whole room, put together a real rockin' and rollin' show. Uh, which, on that note, we want to uh, establish right up front the players. Ian Bob Dylan's Never Running Tour Band here on December 19th, 1997. We've got Larry Campbell on the electric guitar. We've got Bucky Baxter on the pedal steel. We've got David Kemper on the drums. And this is a phrase I'm going to say quite often. I think we're all going to say quite often. We've got Tony Garnier on the bass. Great band. Great era of the band. Yeah, just to talk a little bit about this tour. You know, the, the, he was playing a lot of 
famous clubs, you know, from coast to coast. You know, the tour began this this uh, tour of clubs began in November thirtieth, and he, you know, he, it's my birthday. Is it your birthday? <laughs> you turned three were, were years you? old that day. <laughs> I was gonna say yeah. like you guys were like fetuses probably like when this. Tour I was, was five, and place. Evan literally turned three. It was three. I would have been big year for me. I would have been a young man of 20 years old when this tour was taking place. There Fortunately, I did not get to see it, but uh, it started in Nashville and uh, went to Atlanta and played at the 930 Club in D.C., Irving Plaza in New York, Trocadero, a couple shows in Philadelphia, the Metro in Chicago, which is a venue I've been to many times, really great club there, and culminating with this five-show run uh, at the El Rey. And That's right. uh, it's... You know, we we went with the with the nineteenth because that is the show that was most commonly bootlegged at the time, and it's the right. it's the show that if you are a collector of Bob Dylan live recordings, if you know any show from the El Rey, it's probably the nineteenth. However, we could have picked other shows from this run. I think all of the shows are really good. I have to say that I'm kind of partial to the seventeenth, which. We're not going to be diving into in this episode, but I feel like every show from this run has absolute highlights, and I don't Something know if we like want to if we want to talk about some of those because, like, well, yeah, I think we should because I think I I like the we were originally going to do the 18th. There are definitely some that are really special uh, bust outs, like for me and I think for Ian too. On the 18th, there's a version of Born in Time, which is like like come on. Give me a, a break. It's like the best thing ever. You came yourself. Just like the law. You married young. Just like your mom. Oh, babe. Then you left me. With your sweetie. Now it's sweetie. I'm around. Really resonant. Yeah, sounds beautiful. It's got a really nice, easy country rock tone to it. That's part of what I love about this band at this moment in time is how like it's hard, it's sharp, it's tight, but it's got this just beautiful kind of sweet, honeyed, fragrant country feel to it at the same time. Um, and uh, Born in Time was just made to sound like that, made to be heard in that kind of context. Same goes for I Want You uh, on that 18th show. Just to touch on another absolute favorite is just is uh, a, a, an absolutely incredible. Uh, uh, country rock version that brings tears to my eyes. There's no other way to say it. Totally. This band, I think the way to describe them, you're on to something there where it's like their sound is Bob Dylan fronting this very tight but totally romantic and uh, lilting kind of like alt country group. That's kind of how they sound. Yeah, I mean, I think, and we'll get into this when we get into the show. We're going to be talking about the MVPs uh, for uh, you know this particular recording. And I know yeah. for me, one of the candidates for sure is Bucky Baxter because yeah. I think his pedal steel playing is such a signature from this time, and it does give it that country rock feel. That when you have the pedal steel going against like 
the heavy guitar attack. It's just a great juxtaposition. And I kind of feel like that was a sound that proved to be influential on like what became Americana music. Sure. Because that's not something that really existed as a term in 1997. But I think generally, like Time Out of Mind, that sort of like noirish, again, heavy guitar, but also atmospheric type Haunted rock, kind of sound, yeah. Ended up being really influential for that. And you, and you hear that like throughout this run. Like I've been listening to this run a lot getting ready to record this episode and I actually put together a compilation of my favorite songs that we're going to put on our Patreon. That's right. People that people can check out because not only are the time out of mind songs, I think just coming across incredibly well in this set. And it's funny cuz like in the 1219 show he's not necessarily playing like the most famous songs from Time Out of Mind. It's like he's playing some of like what I would call like the lesser songs from that record. And they sound yes. so good live. Yeah, I think he, he improves upon it, but also applying that time out of mind sound to like other older Bob Dylan tracks, like getting back to like highlights from other shows that we're not going to be talking about today, uh, but are on my compilation. And I definitely were checking out. Like I love the 1217 show. And the version of Senor, Senor, of Yankee Power, is like so great. Again, this country rock, Bucky Baxter coming in with the pedal steel heat with Larry Campbell, Bob Dylan's guitars grinding against each other, Dave Kemper doing the fills. It's just beautiful. That's a great point because I think it there's something really interesting going on there with with a song like that. Like When we talk about Dylan uh, and the different iterations of the band and the way that it evolves over time, um, I think that sometimes to be real, like people kind of get are like nonplussed when they hear like him doing it. When they hear these songs played in a different way, it can sometimes be kind of like, what the fuck is this? Um, even if it sounds great, like it's people don't want to like match it or don't want to meet it halfway. Um, but with a song like Senor, I think something happens often, which is that that song doesn't sound at all out of place in that style and in fact i think that original song senior when that came out is actually like an indicator of a place that he would later fully explore with this sound um it's like yeah. it's it's kind of backwards but like sometimes that happens where 
something that happens way later in his career, you notice actually there was always kind of the seed of it and he gets back to it and really explores it. And that's where these seemingly out of nowhere approaches to the songs come from. Like they never are totally out of the blue. He's always, it's based on something that was there before. Absolutely. Yeah. He kind of grows into certain songs over time. And Senior, I think he's better suited for this band at this moment in time in 97 than it was in 1978. Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly the Budokan, you know, uh, 78 World Tour kind of band, as great as that was and as much as we love it, like Senior just really makes so much sense when you hear it this way. Because uh, this is also kind of the moment. I'm really partial, you know, we'll get into this in many other episodes. I'm really partial to like the 94, 95 era of the yeah, band same. when Bob is really stretching these songs to their absolute breaking point in terms of like literally the amount of time that he can fill. Like they just, yeah. they sound like the dead. Um, and, uh, and, and by this point he's kind of coming back to earth a little bit. This band is tighter, it's smoother, it's a little softer, and these songs aren't quite as crazy jammy as what you get in 94, 95. But it still does have a little bit of that that free form, uh, you know, kind of you know taking the dog for a walk sort of guitar soloing, um, and I think Senor, at this moment in time, with that Bucky Baxter pedal steel, with Larry Campbell still doing some of that soloing um, that he's so good at, and then just the way that Bob is inhabiting these songs, you know, I, I really love the tone of his voice in general at this moment. Um, it's just a really kind of like like the, the, the different songs of his make more or less sense at different points throughout his career and throughout the never-ending tour uh and this for senior as a great example i think this is probably like the high watermark of that song ever having been performed i'll say too that one thing i think that really comes across in this show and like the l ray stand in general is just a feeling of confidence and swagger that dylan is feeling and uh, and, and just being with the band and and again getting into some of the contextual stuff that's happening at this time, you know, you have Dylan in 97, he's been through this wilderness period in the 90s where he's doing a lot of great things on the road, but in terms of popular culture, he's basically a non-entity for an extended period of time. He's like as far removed from the mainstream as he's ever been in his career, mm-hmm. and now he has this triumph triumphant uh, record with Time Out of Mind, and you know, early in December, you know, we mentioned uh, him playing at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. When he was in D.C., he also uh, won the Candy Center honor from Bill Clinton that, at that time. So he's, he's winning that award. Uh, this show uh, took place two weeks before the Grammys were announced. Uh, January 6, 1998, the uh, nominations were announced. Of course, Time Out of Mind. Uh, garnered several nominations on the way to winning album of the year for Time Out of Mind in 1998. Yep. So you have all those things going on. So I feel like when you listen to these shows, there is that sense of like, you know, I've been through this period where people were ignoring me and now I'm getting all of these platitudes again. I think another thing that's worth noting is that like these Time Out of Mind songs he wasn't playing these songs live until the record came out. Yeah. So like you listen to these shows, he's playing like a a significant number of new songs. They're all like relatively new. Like a lot of people haven't heard these songs live yet. So I think that is another element of just like injecting this new material into the set. And it's really great. And again, even the material that like, isn't 
you know, because some of these songs that he played, like in this show in particular, are not considered like the, you know, the gems of Time Out of Mind. But even those songs sound so great yeah. with this band. Yeah, and, it's yeah. it's that thing that happens, which I think uh, it affected me as like maybe the main symptom of talking about Bob Dylan for so long is that I've developed, I think, Ian, you probably feel similarly, like an appreciation for actually just seeing the the thing be done, uh, just see, just seeing this, seeing music be accomplished in like in this way. And um, that might sound like I'm, my standards have been lowered, but it's actually more of like um, an appreciation for like the miracle of it happening every time. Like, and uh, that means that songs that I'm maybe not crazy about, like Cold Irons Bound or Can't Wait, they actually feel entertaining from the beginning until the end to, to watch and to witness and um, talk about. And that's something that I also got a lot from 36 from the vault, your podcast about the grateful dead. It's like, you've got to f- reach that place to really fully appreciate that group. Uh, this place of being excited to see actually just nuance and be paying close attention to what is different in the energy. And it, it might seem like, Oh, that's like the same song over and over, but it's really not. It's really uh, an evolving thing that, asks of you to be more sensitive to what is going on on stage. Right. Yeah. Two, two things on both of those, one for you, one for what you were saying, Evan, and one for what you were saying, Stephen. Uh, first, Time Out of Mind, I think, is the, song, the songs on Time Out of Mind are perfectly suited for that kind of concept that you're just talking about there, Evan, because obviously we know Bob was so dissatisfied with the finished product and came to be so dissatisfied uh, with the finished product uh, and felt like... Um, you know, what was done to the songs as they were released on the album uh, was not an accurate representation of what these songs really were to him uh, or really what he was going for in, in many cases, you know, with, with exceptions here and there. Um, but, uh, you know, getting to hear songs like Till I Fell in Love With You, unshackled and removed from any sort of studio wizardry, any sort of influence of Lanois or anyone outside of Bob and these particular players, um, I, you know, I think that's that's really the whole fucking like uh, purpose behind this kind of project in general. Um, you know, us doing this show and, and getting into this kind of aspect of things because it's just it's a totally different thing. Um, and then Stephen uh, uh, talking about the new material, right? It's easy to you know sort of take for granted, but this was the first hint of any new material that anyone had gotten from Bob for seven years, which is the longest point in his entire career. Um, up until that point, and you know, we're, we're, we kind of he kind of tied it with the Tempest to um, uh, Rough and Rowdy, um, uh, you know, gap there uh, of but, original material of yeah. original material. Exactly, no one has heard any original material from Bob Dylan at this point since fucking Under the Red Sky in 1990. And I think it can't be overstated that at the time there was, I think, a common perception that he was not going to write songs again, right, or that he would never write great songs again. Um, and even from Dylan himself, you know, he's talked about this, that he wasn't really interested in songwriting for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. he was doing those early 90s acoustic uh, folk records, uh, uh, As Good As I've Been To You and World Gone Wrong. And he really seemed to be in a holding pattern with, uh, with, with songwriting. And it just seemed like, okay, maybe I'm just going to play my old songs in different ways on the road. And, and I don't really need any new material anymore. Sure. 
Uh, so to come out with a record as monumental, and I'm going to say monumental, it's time out of mind because I love that record. The shock of that, I, I, I think it might be difficult to appreciate now because even like a record like Rough and Rowdy Ways, which is a, an amazing album, but Bob Dylan putting on a great record in 2020, I don't think is the same as him putting on a record in 1997. No, yeah, he, he had already broken that. Uh, that thing was never going to happen again of, uh, oh, Bob Dylan, that has been. That was the first and last time that would ever really go as far as it did in the in the public consciousness. And this period is like a time of correcting that record in in a way that will that never Never to be undone. It's just, but like, it's like he, but it's like he really was a has been. That, yeah, that's the yeah, amazing exactly. thing about yeah. it is that like he was washed up, and I think even in his own mind he was washed up, and he found most importantly, yeah, he found he, he found his way back from that, and like time out of mind, it was like the first event, Bob Dylan album of like my lifetime of like knowing about bob dylan albums right and like really every album after that has been treated like an event you know we're sort of used to that now like certainly like of his original material like if he puts out a, an original album people are going to care about care about it and dive into it and dissect it and analyze it um but there wasn't that feeling about him for a long time even like oh mercy being really praised when it came out having under the red sky come so close after that right and and coming so shortly on the heels of knocked out loaded and the dylan and the dead release yeah right there was almost like this feeling oh, oh mercy is maybe like an aberration you know right. or like a fluky record and again shout out to the dark prince clinton halen <laughs> loving he loves under the red sky and i gotta say dylan plays the song under the red sky on the december 20th show from this mm. run it's like a really good version of that song Under the Red Sky live is so like that song always sounds great when he plays it live. It's it's makes so much more sense just on stage him having a good time with the band behind him than whatever that version was. And, that and came born out in on time the record. too. Born and in born time, in time. yeah, exactly. Also from that record, which is uh, so weird. I always think of that as a Oh Mercy outtake, but right. yeah, that was on Under the Red Sky. One thing I wanted to bring up with you guys. This is another part, important thing of, of of context with this show because when I listen to the twelve nineteen recording, one thing I keep thinking about is that the huge cinematic hit, James Cameron Titanic, yes, yeah. <laughs> came out the same day as the show twelve nineteen ninety seven that That's we're right. talking about today, and I just wonder a couple of things: is Bob thinking about Titanic when he's on stage like because we know Bob saw this movie 
because he wrote the song Tempest, Tempest. on the album Tempest. And we could talk about that song a little bit, uh, which I because I revisited it for this episode. Also, you know, one of the great Bob Dylan songs of all time, Desolation Row, includes... Oh, Tempest, you mean. One of the great Bob Dylan songs of all time, Tempest. Is that what you just said? The fireworks are flying already. I'll, I'll call Desolation Row a precursor to Tempest. It was like, it was a yeah. way station on the way to him writing Tempest. That's right. But anyway, right. but Desolation Row includes a reference to Titanic. Yeah. In uh, that song, so, you know, as a metaphor for, uh, you know, the end of the world and then... Of course, he wrote the song Tempest, where he's basically just, I feel like all that he knows about Titanic is from the film Titanic, based on that uh, song. I don't know about that. I think he knows <laughs> a lot more. He's probably read more books and, and things about the Titanic than any of us. Yeah, but then, but but he's only, but he only cares about the movie in that song, though. It seems like the song is <laughs> no. I, I feel like the movie's driving that about... song. The song does seem like the movie. Yeah, it, it's it to me. It definitely seems like you know an outtake for a hidden uh, a Titanic soundtrack that never actually came out. Leo no, took his sketchbook. I, I think they're kind of right. I think that he includes the movie, but I, I don't think we should go so far as to think the whole song is the movie because I think the reason why it's good is that it actually isn't, but. It does include the movie. It make it's big enough to include that huge movie as a footnote within it. Well, it's um, a, but but like Leo's a Leo is like a protagonist in that song. Like he is no, like I mean, one of yeah, the protagonists. Sure. Well, of so course, it's more than a footnote. And it's not even Jack. It's Leo. <laughs> it's Leo exactly. I mean, I haven't seen Titanic since it came out, but I believe that there are Dylan quotes in the screenplay too. Really, that Jack, aka Leo like says in the movie i think it's like one of the things that people talk about that movie that there's like these sort of like anachronistic dylan references oh me oh my love that country pie like something like that i think he's probably <laughs> quoting like it's all right ma in some way it's Whether all right ma, it's just a a lar- it's just an ice it's not just, an iceberg <laughs> maybe he quotes maybe he quotes desolation row but like the thing about okay so because i listened to tempest again uh i hadn't heard that song in many years and it is interesting with that song because I remember when it came out, people were calling it either like one of the best Bob Dylan songs ever or one of the worst. People kind of thought it was a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 in retrospect, it feels like a prequel to Murder Most Foul. It's mm-hmm. like, totally. It, to me, it feels like a dry run for that song where he's writing about this historical event. It's obviously like an epic length song. I think what separates Murder Most Foul is that musically Murder Most Foul is just way more arresting. You know, right. it, whereas I think Tempest well, it Tempest is more of like a one note on song. A, a, yeah. a, a song by um, it's the a Carter uh, family song. Yeah, it's by the Carter family. So it's really like uh, I think, yeah, the difference being that like the idea of uh, of Murder Most Foul being kind of something that exists like as this ethereal thing that it floats above reality and within it and uh, is kind of uh, omnipresent. And then I think Tempest feels like his attempt to do something on that scale, but still as sort of this like ship in a bottle type of song that is like you can see it and you can hold it. And it's like a the shape and texture of a folk song but it actually is like much grander in size than that is usually ever allowed to go, which is in itself a really interesting idea. Right. Um, 
Yeah, Tempest, I mean, is, is clearly, I think, Bob doing what Bob has always done, just taking music from the past and repackaging it and reinterpreting it and interpolating it in his own unique way and consciously, like, not even bothering to change the melody from the Carter Family song. Like, clearly, he's, like, drawing a line there versus Murder Most Foul really is just fucking sweet generis. Like, there is no reference point for that anywhere in the past. It is his own just, you know, fucking Guernica moment, uh, you know, here at the late late date. So, like... Tempest has 45 verses, which is incredible to say. I love that it has 45 <laughs> verses. And um, the interesting thing about that song is, again, like when it came out, people would, like, would literally like a live blog listening to it in real time. And it would just be about how long the song is. And in the estimation of some people that it's like an endless song, maybe a pointless song. What I thought was interesting when I revisited it is that it actually didn't seem as long. It goes by in a flash. I think because of Murder <laughs> Most Foul. Because it's mm-hmm. like, it's five minutes shorter than than Murder Most Foul. So I remember what, like when it ends, because it's about 14 minutes long. I think it's a shade under 14 minutes. Feeling like, oh, th- is that it? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is like a Guided by Voices song. It's a almost. pop song. You put this on a seven inch. It was very quick. Um, but uh, yeah, again, I, I think that the release of Murder Most Foul, it just recontextualizes that song in my mind where I think I appreciate it more now as a stepping stone to that song. To where it's like, okay, going. it's it's getting there. But again, you know, it's in the tradition of climactic album closing songs. So Yeah. I know, do I, Are there any great live versions of Tempest, by the way? I think there's like I think he's only played it a couple times. We gotta we get a show where we will certainly we will get a show where he does Tempest. I want to hear like, because whenever he does those really long songs live and we have an example of that in our show today, actually. And that's going to be, I think one of the most interesting songs to talk about (laughs) at 1219, one of like a, like a really long song, but they always get shorter. They always get shorter, like significantly shorter. He's never played it. He's He's, never played it. We would have known about that. Come on. Well, he never, he's, he's, he's never done Tempest live? Never done no. Tempest live. I no. was thinking Roll On John, which he's done, I think, yeah. two times ever. Um, okay. But, yeah, Tempest Oh, itself. man. So Tempest is like a white whale. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's white Moby shit. Dick okay. himself. All right. Well, we're going to have plenty of conversation about Tempest in the future. Uh, Lord knows <laughs> that's a favorite subject of conversation around these parts. Let's, uh, let's talk about Bob Dylan live at the El Rey Theater on December 19th, 1997. <laughs>
We're going to uh, we're going to shake things up a little bit, I think, uh, based on the order that you might have expected from uh, uh, Jokerman podcasts in the past. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna hit some some high points, some low points. We've got a couple different categories to talk about here uh, instead of going through song by song by song by song by song, which gets a little long in the tooth at certain points. Uh, first up, we're gonna talk about pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. Shout out James Adams, we're stealing your bit. Uh, what we liked about Bob Dylan live at the El Rey Theater on December 19th, 1997. Steven? Yeah, I mean, look, there's so much here. I mean, this is, I think, uh, a great show. And again, a, a great run at the El Rey. I got a couple points I want to hit. I think the time out of mind material, you have to lead with that. It really smokes. Yes. And we've talked about how he's not necessarily playing the songs that are considered the best songs yes. from that record. Like, there's no Not Dark Yet here there's standing no, in the doorway no standing in the doorway he does play lovesick uh in the encore which uh is great evan made a reference to cold irons bound not being a favorite for him i actually am a fan of that song and i think Same. especially live that song is it smokes it just gets, it, yeah it it's, just gets it elevated. Smokes live that's for sure um and i like the song can't wait but i would put that in that lesser song category that sounds great live one song I was really surprised to love is Till I Fell in Love With yes, You. Yes, yes. Which I've always considered that. Again, I love Time Out of Mind, but that would be the closest to like a filler type song on the record. That and Dirt Road Blues. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm a... I'm You're like a big Dirt guy. Road Blues head. Okay. Well, I'm not a big fan. I'm, I'm, I'm like the only guy that will defend uh, Dirt Road Blues, but... Um, <laughs> The Dark Prince doesn't like that song either, by the way. He, he trashed that song. But anyway, Till I Fall in Love With You, so much better live totally. than on the record, I think. So the Time Out of Mind material is great. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to anticipate what you guys are going to say here. I don't want to just like list everything well, I Well, I'll hop on the, the Time Out of Mind stuff. I, that is one of my favorite uh, you know, uh, elements of the show, too. There's no question about it. And I do really think that it is significant that he's... He's, these are the songs that he's playing from Time Out of Mind, right? Because there is no standing in the doorway. There is no uh, trying to get to heaven. Um, I, I almost feel like he was a little, like, kind of bashful or, like, unsure of himself with the strength of the material on Time Out of Mind and wanted to introduce the record and start playing it live with these sort of lower-stakes songs like Can't Wait, like Till I Fell in Love With You, stuff that's just, like, easier to vamp with and to have fun with with the band on stage, we know, you know, based on all of the live shows that he's played since then, that a lot of these songs do end up becoming, you know, integral parts of, you know, the, the never-ending tour, and there's just incredible versions um, uh, that uh, pop up all over the place over time. But initially, you know, and, and I think this also, you know, ties into him not even playing any of this shit live throughout all of 97 until the record comes out in September, even though he had cut these songs and written them months in advance. Um, it really does feel to me like Bob was kind of like a little nervous about coming back, stepping back into the spotlight with with this major kind of statement, you know, and unsure of how it would be received uh, in the public and by obviously the longtime Dylan heads who had gone almost a decade without hearing anything new from him. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like for an artist of his vintage to play, I think he plays three songs from Time Out of Mind. I think it's, uh, it's Cold Irons, Can't Wait, Till I Fell in Love With You, and Love Six. So, so four. four. So yeah. it's like a quarter of the set is from the new record. I think that's 
I think that shows like a fair amount of confidence that I these guess are good songs. True. I'm sort of comparing it. I, I, I guess I'm spoiled because I'm comparing it to the Rough and Rowdy tour, which is literally just the whole record minus Murder Most Foul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, again, that's like a different Dylan period. That's a different where thing. Yeah, exactly. People, where it's a given that his new record is going to be a major statement. This is like still that era, like where there might have been an expectation that he's going to play more oldies. So, like, right. he, that he would like play these songs. And he's putting Lovesick in the encore, you know? Right. So I think that speaks to his confidence in the material. I have to say, too, that another highlight for me Joey. the show. Well, we'll get to Joey. I was going to say uh, Man in the Long Black Coat Ooh. is a highlight for me. And gener- like, if you look at this run overall, he always plays like a curveball in the second spot, yeah. a song that... He's not going to repeat in the other shows. You know, we mentioned Senor. That was the second song of uh, that set. And, uh, you know... The, I Want You is the second set on uh, on the 18th. Um, tonight I'll uh, Be Staying With You. I'll Be Staying Here the, With You on the, on the 20th. 20th. Yep. So, um, but Man in the Long Black Coat, it's such a great choice. I love that song. And the way that they play it here, especially it highlights how that song is like the most time out of mind sounding song from Mo Mercy. Sure. You know, and I think it really gets the time out of mind treatment here live. So that that's like a big highlight for me from totally. the show. Yeah. He, I, I looked this up. He's played that song 287 times. Man which sounds, Yeah, which sounds like a lot, but I think in terms of Bob Dylan songs... Not necessarily like an overplayed song. He hasn't played it since 2013. Right. Yeah. And it's been 34 years since Oh Mercy, right? So, like 230, whatever, that is like a decent number. But, like, over 34 years, that's a relative deep cut as far as the shit that he's willing to put out there, you know? Yeah. It seems like he played it, you know, maybe about a dozen times a year. Right. You know? But has that. had, but you said he hasn't played it since 2013. Yeah. It's so, like, not for a while. for a decade at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can't Wait, I think, in general, is one of the the highlights for me here. And that, again, is the same way that Till I Fell in Love with You, for you, Stephen, you know, on the record, sounds almost kind of filler-like. Um, and uh, and live, you know, really comes comes together. I feel the same way about Can't Wait, which has always been the most frustrating song for me on Time Out of Mind, I think, buried there at the end of the record. And it, it's a really interesting song lyrically, but just the... The, the fucking music, just the way it's put across is just turgid and, and, and slow and really brings the vibe down for me, you know, towards the end. Um, and uh, uh, but every like every time I hear this song live and this is a great example and like the 2019, I'm sure we'll do one of these at some point, but like the 2019 tour when he was doing Can't Wait, which turns into this beautiful like funk rock, almost like Nile Rodgers chic sounding like funkadelic bass uh, a riff that's taken the whole thing through. Um, like this song is just, this is the perfect example of like a song that Bob had and Bob knew this was a great song. And honestly, I think just like kind of got butchered in the studio in the midst of all of this sturm and drang between him and Lanois. Um, Cause this was the song, you know, that Lanois thought like this was a hit. This is a big major song. This is the single, this is the fucking desolation row on this record. Uh, and I think they just didn't, they didn't end up nailing it um, in the studio, but uh, live, I think it has a whole second life to me. Joey. <laughs> that's your, that's pretty good stuff to you is Joey. Yeah. I mean, like, I like all these kind of weird picks that are kind of different than what you'd expect. Like Joey, 
I mean, what you were just saying about uh, Can't Wait also applies to Joey. It's like songs that kind of um, are whatever on the record that here he's like picks up the tempo and kind of like brings uh, a bit more of life into them. They just breathe better live. Right. And um, that's like, it's a great thing. Cause it's like, Oh cool. There's another, another good Bob Dylan song where you thought <laughs> there was actually just like kind of a, it's like a dim bulb in, in your display. And, and then he's like, actually, uh, no, that's, that one's also good. If you just look at it uh, a different way at a different time. And that's kind of the best thing about so much of what we have here. It's like song like uh, Cold Iron's Bound, which is a good song. And I think also really sings live all across the board of his career. Um, no, no different here. Um, Joey is like remarkable just for not being fucking boring. Um and I also really like the other kind of one-offs, like um, "Obey but Ain't No Lie." I really like. Feels yeah, the cover. Like, yeah, he was like doing an that. That was of uh, like the '93 uh, era sort of folk and blues standards. That seemed to be his thing on this club run was doing this like cover uh, in the seventh slot. So uh, you've got Roving Gambler in the seventh slot on a lot of shows. You've got. Uh, stone walls and steel bars, which is fantastic. On the yeah, 18th. I really like yeah. that one too. Yeah, yeah. The, the acoustic sets are always great. And I have to say too that one of the things I really appreciate because I want to get to Joey here in a minute because <laughs> I'm actually on Evan's page with this. Uh, and, and I'm I think the I'm the Ian I'm disagrees. the one that sticks out here. Okay, so let's let's table Joey we'll for table a second. I, I think one thing I really like about this show too is that the songs that I would maybe skip. Because you know, I've heard like a million live versions of them, um, are actually played really well at this show. Like mm. you get to the encore and you hear Highway sixty one revisited, yeah, and it's a smoking version of that Fire. song. Even Rainy Day Women, which is a yeah. song, I, oh, that's a song I skip on Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, okay, because I don't. It's like I want to get to pledging my time. I don't want to hear <laughs> Rainy Day Women. I like Rainy but Day like Day the the cool thing about the live version here is that they kind of do like the beginning of the record where they, they do like the, the marching band drum part and like they, they mimic the, uh, kazoo the horn sound. Part. Yeah. I think it's a kazoo. Is it a kazoo? I, I think it is. Um, they mimic that and they, and then they go into like the sort of standard blues rock arrangement of it. But I appreciate that little part at the beginning and, you know, even Maggie's farm, like every show from this run begins with Maggie's farm. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, not a Bob Dylan song I really need to hear ever again. But like, <laughs> he, it's played really well, and it's rocking. And you have Larry Campbell smoking on guitar. You got David Kemper all over, all over the kit. So I think that stuff, in a way, is like a real mark of like how good the show is. Yes, that you can hear these songs you've heard a million times, and they're really good. I mean, like knocking on heaven's door. Oh yeah, you got you got Cheryl Crow playing uh, uh, the accordion beautifully. Is she yeah, accordion so Cheryl Crow yeah. is here. Wait, oh, this man. is this is extremely your shit, Stephen. I don't know from Cheryl Crow at all. Like I don't really have any. Oh man, awareness. Go, go put on it makes you happy. Well, I know oh. that song. 
I guess okay, I, well, she's, one of, those, she's <laughs> one of those people I know way more than I think I do, probably. Yeah, you know, I mean, she is like the female Tom Petty. And that she's got like an artist. I also uh, don't have that much experience. <laughs> like, I, I know, know, but Tom like, Petty's but but that but she's got like a dozen songs that everybody knows. Yeah, they've been that's, on the radio. That's true. You know, you don't um, need to. You don't need to buy a Sheryl Crow record or like listen to her consciously because she, I already she's, have. Got, like, do- she's got a dozen songs that yeah. are just like in the atmosphere. You know, because they're so, so it's perfect popular. that she's on for "Knocking on Heaven's Door," another song which, like, you just know through uh, osmosis, through just standing. If you're standing on a street corner, eventually you'll hear it for somehow. Well, uh, so on the note of these, like, kind of standards, like predictable, like played a thousand, heard a million fucking time uh, uh, type of songs from Bob's catalog, Maggie's Maggie's Farm, uh, Highway 61. Uh, Rainy Day Women. I'm totally with you on all that, Stephen. And and initially, when we were gonna do the 18th show uh, for for this first episode, that that seemed to make the most sense because I think the set list on that is really, you know, it was really like if we're gonna if we're gonna pick a Jokerman type of set list from fucking uh, um, uh, Willie McTell. To yeah, why, time why are we to doing the 19th here? What happened? Well, so that's what I'm. That's what I'm gonna say. Is what's well, the think, most? Because it, it's the most famous yeah, show from this. It's ride. the most. It's the most famous show. But here's the thing: we hit Jokerman. That's a separate thing. This is the most never-ending stories kind of set because it consists of the most kind of bog-standard, predictable, most well-known Bob Dylan songs, but played in these fantastic, totally new, exciting arrangements. And I think sure. that's a key. That's a key difference and a key differential and something that this show is going to come back to again and again. We're going to find the beauty there is in hearing the millionth version of Rainy Day Women or All Along the Watchtower or Blowing in the Wind. These songs that if it kills we might us, be bored. Gonna... Exactly. <laughs> Maybe not All Along the Watchtower. That well, might be yeah. a little too much to ask for. But... <laughs> that's fair. but that's the idea. I will say, and again, like we're, we're going to talk about this on our Patreon which you should definitely subscribe to because you're going to get a deeper experience from the That's show. Right. But like, I would say, like, if you're talking about like most interesting set list, it's twelve seventeen. I think that has like. Because that's where you're getting Senior, you're getting like like the White Dove and Roving Gambler. Right. There's more curveballs in that set, but I think this show. Well, first of all, it just sounds the best out of all. I th- in I terms of the fidelity of the bootleg. The fidelity, yeah. Yes. Like it's, it almost sounds like a real live record. It sounds like a soundboard, yeah, or pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Some of the other recordings like aren't as good, although like most of them are like are really good. Like the yeah. the worst sounding show was probably 12, 12, 16, the first show. Um, and by the way, hats off to the tapers, man. Like how did they get, I don't know how these people are sneaking in recording equipment in 1997 into like a 900 capacity club. Like they've done man, us all a great service. You're magicians. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, and that's, and that's like, that can't be, I think, uh, overstated that like the fidelity of a bootleg. It impacts your listening experience. Yeah. There's no question about it. Why did they be that way? Why well, the answer just because Larry was the only 
section yes let's get to oh mercy oh mercy oh mercy which is where we're talking about like what's not good about this show and this is a good opportunity to talk about joey because oh mercy isn't joey well no hold on a second i i agree with evan i really like this version of joey no and it's funny with joey because if you listen to dylan bootlegs over the years this is a song that he periodically digs out yeah from his coffers, and you sort of feel like, why is he digging out Joey of all songs? Um, but there is a tradition of him speeding up this song live. Like, there's a, <laughs> one day it's going to be so fast, you're not even going to, it'll go by in a flash. Ian, it, he's going to play Joey, and you're going to blink and miss it. I hope so. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about like 1988 versions of this song, which right. are like garage rock Joey. It, it's pretty amazing. He was playing with the Dead on the uh, on Dead tour too, which it's kind of a great song to play with the Dead. I have yeah, to it is. Joey makes more with sense the with the Dead. It, I don't know what's your problem with this one though, Ian, because like I I don't I'm not saying I love it either. But I think uh, Steve and I are on the same page. That's like, hey, it's not bad. Can I just throw this out there? Like this, and I want to get your reaction to this. I because I was listening. I've listened to this the most. From this, this Joey, show. <laughs> this Joey, I've listened to Joey the most. You're a sick man, and I was like, "Why am I responding to this?" And I realized that he turned it into Shelter from the Storm. Ah, like, uh, if, you, if you listen to like the electric versions of Shelter from the Storm, it sounds like this Joey. Yeah, you're right. So, uh, so I was like, "That's why I like it because I love another lifetime, one of clams." And blood. <laughs> you just like a different song. When when clam houses were on every street, but it works. <laughs> Because I mean, the thing with I mean, and I don't even hate the Desire version of this song. Like I don't hate it. I don't love it. And I have to be in the right mood to listen to it on Desire. But on Desire, it feels almost like Howie Wyeth. I hope I'm not mispronouncing his last name. The drummer, yeah, uh, Dylan's drummer at the time. It sounds like he's falling asleep as he's playing. Joey, it's so <laughs> it goes slow. on long enough. It's so slow. So. Kicking this song in the ass, I think, does a lot yeah. to make it better. And I, I feel like Evan is probably on the same page with this. I think just the perversity of playing this song in this environment <laughs> is part of what I love it. But like, I, I do like it sped up and played like Shelter from the Storm. I think that's what he's doing here. Yeah. And it works for me. That's fair. It still yeah. ends up being eight minutes. Eight, yeah, over eight minutes. Almost nine. It's um, almost nine, but like that's, I think on the record, it's like, 15 minutes 13 or something right. yeah it's so this is a really breezy yeah exactly it's the radio edit of joey i have just come to the conclusion that like i just don't find it a very interesting song like it's just it goes on forever yeah. and i've heard it a zillion times and i'm gonna hear the clam house line and i'm gonna hear the swear he did look great he dressed like jimmy cagney yeah, line yeah. and it's just like um i i i i'm with you on what you're saying steven and i i also 
I, I appreciate Bob's, uh, you know, absolute, you know, perversity and, and sicko mindset to be dropping Joey in the middle of this like triumphant small club run following up his most critically acclaimed record in dozens of years at this point. Um, I just would have preferred literally fucking any other song <laughs> from the entire catalog. Give me precious memories. Give me had a dream about you, baby. Give me um, uh, uh, cats in the well. Uh, anything. Okay, but, but like Joey. if you're gonna if you're gonna like defend Tempest though. Okay, okay. <laughs> why is Joey beyond the pale? I'll tell you why you would. You like can for defend... moral reasons, you gonna throw the moral thing. No, it's just it's, this it's literally less interesting. It's about one guy who like kind of sucks. Versus he's a gangster. About, like, he's a murderer. That's, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's not boring. No, it's not. Maybe we need to read or a, a more close uh, like biography about Joey Gallo. Really, kind of analyze like his character and influence and the type of person that he's being used as like an archetype. Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs wrote a famous takedown. Yes. Bob Dylan, where he writes about this song. Lester Bangs, eternal bitch. It should be noted. Yeah. And, and, it, well, <laughs> and it's a piece I don't agree with, but I think it's a well-written piece where he's talking about <laughs> sure. blood on the tracks and desire. And, and he's talking about this song about how Bob is glamorizing like a scumbag, basically. And Bob Dylan is platforming Joey Gallo. <laughs> which is an argument, I think, that makes sense in the 1970s because Joey Gallo was like a contemporary figure. Like sure, the sure. people that he had like murdered like were, you know, like they hadn't been <laughs> murdered that long. It'd be like if you're going to do a... It'd be like if Bob Dylan wrote a song about Elon Musk or something. Oh. Now. You know, people would be like... Rep- you know, if you're repulsed by that, you would have reason to be repulsed by it. But like now, I feel like writing a song about Jelly Gallo. It's like writing a song about like Jesse James or something. It's right. like an historical criminal. I mean, I think he is an interesting person to right. write a song about. But I, to me, it's just like it's just such a long, droning song on the record. Right. It can it can be a little much. But I'm just saying that if you're going to defend Tempest, I think Joey is. On the same level as Tempest. I, I think it is in a way. Yeah. I think the the difference between Tempest and Joey, to me at least, and this is my, you know, everyone just feel free to disagree, but like, I think he, he was less conscious of what he was doing when he writes and records Joey, and he's much more conscious of it I mean, when he, he writes write it, and though, records Tempest. Yeah, he, he co-wrote it with Jacques, Jacques Levy, uh, and Levy. has claimed throughout his career that it was a total fucking Levy uh, invention and that he just got a co-writing credit on it. Who knows? Obviously, what the reality is. Be the one time ever that Bob Dylan was like, "Actually, I didn't. I didn't write this one exactly." (laughs) I mean, I I I think could be like "Happy Birthday" written by Bob Dylan. (laughs) I think I think you could probably group Joey in the same categories as Hurricane, as like a song about like an outlaw, you know, but like totally. on opposite ends of like the moral spectrum right. like where hurricane is actually that's like a righteous thing to write about and joey is like not but like in 1975 they were both these controversial and embattled figures you know yeah, so, i tell yeah. you i i'm starting to just feel like my initial take on the rolling thunder uh or the desire era just keeps uh keeps being kind of right that like we find ourselves like to talking to her blue in the face, defending songs are pretty kind of fucking boring. Like, in oh way. god, oh, let's <laughs> not go there. Let's not go there. Hurricane, fucking Joey. Like, wait, you yeah, wait, like, hurricane's why, boring? You're saying hurricane's boring? Uh, it don't, becomes don't, boring. I would, I would like don't to lodge. I, I would, I don't would go there. Lodge disagreement with that statement. Hurricane becomes boring. Uh, oh I don't my know. god. 
it becomes boring. When does it become boring? I don't know. It's it's like. But like ben Tempest doesn't then? Like you said, like like. No, because they're de- <laughs> it's too specific. That and that's the thing that I think sinks. This Hurricane song. is way is super. No, specific. That, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like that the thing that Tempest doesn't have, which I think Hurricane and Joey kind of both suffer from. Not that I'm saying they're bad songs, because they have obviously like, the first few times I heard Hurricane, especially I was like thrilled by it. But something that they lack, which Tempest doesn't, is that. There's this kind of a struggle to figure out why it means more than it seems to mean. Like, why is this about more than it's about? And with Tempest, it's like kind of lives on this periphery of like, is he kind of talking about the movie from 1997? Is he talking about the tragedy itself? Is he talking about it as an idea of just this like human folly on a grand scale? I do see what you're saying. And then on Joey and Hurricane, as great as they can be, it's like he's talking. It's like. It's like Bob Dylan was hired to write a song for a Ken Burns movie about the nah, person. See, that's a total postmodern argument that disregards the excitement of the performance. I think what sells Hurricane is the excitement of the performance. Sure, right. you no, know? that's why it doesn't and, totally, like, yeah, it works. <laughs> but it's also oh, like, man. I didn't know. I, I didn't know we were going to have to defend Hurricane in this episode, Look, Lyrically, man. it feels a little bit like, you know, I mean, it... It is in line, both of these actually, with kind of this older folk tradition, which is totally valid and, and real um, as a set, sort of subcategory of song, just like The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. Um, you know, these songs that are about specific people and events, um, which kind of catalog them in this very descriptive, linear way. Um, I think that that is something that, on its face, I don't have an issue with. But... For me, I'm not going to go back and listen to those as much as I'm going to listen to Wait, so you're going to listen to Tempest more than Hurricane? Yeah. Oh, my God. No brainer. I would probably listen to Tempest more than Hurricane also. I, I There's so I much know. more to think about. Like, There's way more to think about in that. I know, but like, just as music, the thing with Tempest is that I think it's... I can buy the argument that it's more fun to think about Tempest, but as like a recording... It's nowhere near as exciting as Hurricane. Like it's just Hurricane is just like a much better recording. At what like, point do, does that stop being like? Once you know the, never. the roller coaster goes, like I don't know. For me, it depends on what version of Hurricane you're talking about. If it's the Desire version of Hurricane, I'm taking Tempest. If it's the Rolling Thunder version of Hurricane, I'll I'm take Rolling Thunder. Okay, but you're like the yeah. biggest. You two are the biggest like Tempest hoes of all. Well, time. no, I Evan's am. more of a Tempest so. hoe than I am. <laughs> but I will say that also, I'm. I'm going to die on the hill that like nothing on desire even is like close to the way it was performed live. The great thing about the never ending stories podcast is we're going to get to talk about all that material live. I can't wait to do like, you as know, if a, we've never talked. Well, let's just well, agree we'll that, 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 that Joey reached its purest yeah, he form does, he on does December 19, yeah, exactly. 1997. <laughs> he, he finally figured it out. He figured it out 31 uh, years or 21 years later. And yeah. even then it's not going to please Ian Grant. But maybe if you were there and you could feel the electricity in the room as he's describing the life and times of... The, the, Mr. The, Joey Gallo. Mr. Joey Gallo. And I will say, Joey Gallo. Uh, this is going to be a hot take. Joey is a better song than Hurricane. Oh, God. Okay. That All is right. a bridge too far. You.
All right, we're gonna we're gonna move it along to MVP of the band, a segment that, at least for the time being, is called Early Roman King. Early Roman King. A Tempest reference. What a exactly. shock. <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? Who's the early Roman king? Oh, who's like the MVP? Who was the MVP of the band? Who was the early Roman king of the never-ending tour band, the Who's not Bob Dylan? I would say the, the drummer, Kemper. You're going to take Kemper. Why do you say Kemper? Well, I just think the rhythm section is something that is really indispensable and really notable about this version of the band. Like, Interesting. There's something about the, the fluidity and strength and power of that drummer of David Kemper that um, I, I think kind of defines this band because as, as much as everything else, you know, is great, which you're right to point out the, the way that they sort of have this sweet and lyrical countryish, countrified sound that is balanced with a kind of more muscular guitar based rock and roll sound. Um, the thing that really holds it together and actually I think translates those like makes them binds them and sells it is this drumming, which, which kind of feels um, definitely more rock based than country and yet is able to perfectly complement these country ish sounds uh, on at, like a very fast pace. It's kind of unique. Like, right. See, for me, the drumming in this era is always kind of a step back, I think, from Winston at the beginning, like the early to mid 90s, which is just this huge, almost like fucking like hair metal kind of influence sort of sound behind Bob. Um, and obviously the jamming, you know, off the off the face of the earth kind of band that he had at that time. Um, Kemper sort of just is is a little bit kind of uh, middle of the road to me. I, he doesn't, to me, have the same kind of like technical uh, uh, perfection as like George Roselli that we're going to get for most of the 2000s uh, and 2010s. Um, but he also doesn't have that like just signature, like enormous, like just really, you know, fucking head head pounding Winston Watson. I think I think you're right, and I think actually <laughs> okay. I was wrong. I was gonna say David Kemper too, actually. Wow. Well, All right. Well, tell us why, Stephen. He was on my list. L- let me just uh, change oh. mine up really quick. I think maybe we'll edit this. I was about to agree with you. This is a be- this is uh, this is too good. This is a moment of reconciliation between you two. You well, Ian, you you've kind of made me see the light there because ultimately I'm more of a Winston Watson uh, guy. And I would, I was kind of just throwing a bone to Kemper because it, it is impressive, and I do think all those things are true. But I guess it's it's got to be Bucky Baxter for me because he's the thing that creates that fusion of rock and mm-hmm. and country, and that's like he's really the thing that when you don't even realize it, like he's kind of defining on the pedal steel, on the mandolin, on the stuff like that. Sure. Yeah, but I I hope I can I've maybe set you up to sing the praises of David Kemper because I do think all those things are true. I, I was going to agree with Evan. I like David Kemper a lot too. And I've got some loyalty to him because before he was in Bob Dylan's band, he was Jerry Garcia's drummer in the Jerry Garcia. Oh, band. Okay. See, and, see, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And I think there is some Jerry Garcia vibes a little bit that he brings to the band, especially on the song Silvio, which is of course co-written with Robert yes. Hunter, famous Jerry Garcia collaborator. And Silvio is a song that like Dylan played, I feel like in every show from this period. Yeah. And he plays it throughout this run. 
He's playing it, you know, throughout like 97, 98. And it's one of those songs. It's another example of a song that you look at on a set list and you're like, Silvio? Like, uh, I don't know about if I'm going to care about this. And it always smokes. Hot, hot fire. Yeah, every so time. Good. Without fail. And it, and it totally. is like the most, like, it's like Dylan at his most Grateful Dead like. Like, yes. I feel like that's a song that Bob Weir would have sung with the dead. You know, if, and I don't know, I don't think the dead ever did that song, but. It feels Silvio's, like that to me. It, it's like Picasso Moon or something. Silvio. Yeah, it, it has like a '90s Dead feel that I have, yeah. a, and I love '90s Dead. Uh, so I I love it for that reason. Although Silvio came out in the '80s, it has like a late '80s, early '90s Dead type feel to it. Sure, sure, sure. So, so I think for that, like, and and Kemper, he's doing like a lot of drum fills here. I actually disagree. I think that he is actually really big uh, on this record. Um, it, it's not necessarily the same style of, of 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 Winston Watson, yeah. But again, it has that more, I think, kind of nuanced, again Jerry Garcia type feel that I that I really dig. So Kemper, he was on my list of of uh, MVPs or uh, ERKs, I guess. ERKs <laughs> uh, for this, uh, you know. I would also say Bucky Baxter for me is an MVP or an e or ERK for what I was saying before. Just for me during this era, I really think of his pedal steel as being a signature yeah. Of, yeah. of this particular era of the band. Cause you know, you have Charlie Sexton that comes in later and it's like Sexton and Campbell. And I love that era, but that's really like a wall of guitars right. era of the band. And, uh, that's great too, because how Sexton and Campbell sing together against Bob is is, is really beautiful. I'm also going to throw Cheryl Crow out as oh, an wow. MVP here, mm-hmm. yeah, because I think in the encore, having her sing on Highway 61 and then her playing accordion on Knocking on Heaven's Door, you know, two songs again. We talked about this earlier that you've heard a million times. You're not necessarily excited to see on you, you know your bootleg set list. Right. But she's bringing a different flavor to it that makes them more unique. And I think it helps to make those songs seem a little bit more special than they would otherwise. Totally. Yeah. I, I'm totally with you on, on Cheryl that, uh, to, to foreshadow our next category, uh, uh, Budokan mode, uh, the, mo- <laughs> the most radical reinterpretation, I think. Well, you Heaven's didn't Door, even say what yours was. Either. Well, I, I was going to say, to foreshadow that, okay. Heaven's Door is the answer to that question, um, in large part due to the accordion uh, and the accordion. The sound yeah, of the incredible. accordion. Well, oh, it's beautiful. It, it's not the answer to that question. <laughs> Ooh, all right. Well, well hang on. So let's, let's table that for now. For me, my ERK is Larry. It's got to be Larry for me, uh, because I think that his... You're totally right, Stephen. The, the way that Campbell and Sexton clash and complement one another in like kind of the early 2000s Love and Theft era uh, instantiation of the tour band of the Neverending Tour band, which is maybe kind of like the classical version of this band, maybe my favorite. If you just put a gun to my head, um, totally signature, totally you know, uh, just fantastic music. But the way that Campbell is able to just sort of like be the guitarist. I think in this version of the band um, and, and just like is responsible for all of these solos uh, because like we talked about earlier, like Bob is still kind of leaning into this jammier mode at this, at this time being, he hasn't really gone into the whole like jump blues, you know, uh, old man river kind of mindset that he does in the 21st century. 
Um, this is still just like a, a rock band, um, and and that I think totally totally lives or dies by Larry Campbell on the guitar. Um, and his performance on Silvio is fucking amazing. His performance mm-hmm. on Highway 61 is amazing. His performance on When I Paint My Masterpiece, which we haven't talked about yet, that's maybe my favorite of like kind of the standard catalog songs uh, in Bob's, uh, uh, or that he includes in this set. And that's not even a standard catalog song to the extent that Highway 61 or Rainy Day Women is. But, um, I mean, he's just, he's just absolutely on fire. Yeah. And obviously Bucky Baxter's, Pedal steel is a more, you know, noticeable signature kind of sound. It's more remarkable, I think, at this moment in time. But um, I don't know. Just for me, Campbell's guitar playing is just, you know, absolutely on fire and completely gives Bob the license to do whatever he wants to with any of these songs, go as crazy and reinterpretive as he wants to in some cases, and then in others, you know, hew a little bit closer to the studio version um, than you might expect him to do with a never-ending tour show. It's, uh, it's you know, he kicks ass. There's no question. Yeah, I mean, Larry Campbell, definitely a big fan of him. I'm going to say top three guitarist that Dylan ever played with. I Ooh. think you, you got to put Robbie Robertson at number one, no matter what objections you might have to Robbie Robertson. <laughs> no, 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 man. 66 Come on, tour. Yeah, I've got nothing to say. I'm just, I'm just throwing that. Robbie, Robbie uh, as a guitarist, I'm, you know. I'm with, I'm 100% Throwing that out as a caveat, because I know we got to have some Robbie haters out there. But nah, like, yeah, six, no. 66 tour, get out of here. Is the some of the greatest. You don't want smoke guitar. with Robbie Robertson. You remember that classic Twitter moment where somebody was like uh, making fun of the band, and he really came after him. He was like, "Yeah, I wish that I had written the fucking Cleveland show." Yeah, <laughs> that was a good. One. I interviewed Robbie Robertson several years ago, and it was like, I can't hate on this guy because his resume is unbelievable. No hate so, on yeah, Robbie. So, so he'd be my number one. But like Larry Campbell. Like two or three, I the god G.E. Smith. I'm a big G.E. Smith fan. G.E. just has like an ineffable swag to him. I'm excited to get to the G.E. years. He's the coolest and, looking guitarist. Absolutely. Yeah. Best, one of the greatest guitar face makers of all time. G.E. Smith. <laughs> Hall of Fame guitar face maker. Uh, so yeah, I love Larry Campbell. I just looked up uh, a little Larry Campbell factoid on, and I'm sure we're going to be referencing this substack many times flagging down the double e's written by oh, the great, shout out to ray the great ray paget but uh he has an interview with uh, larry campbell his first show with bob was in march of 1997 so he was you know geez well, i did not realize that it was this it was that fresh yeah like he started this year so you know he had been with you know, he'd been with bob for like a good number of shows in 97 by the time he gets to this run but you know he was with bob uh, until I believe uh, it would have been like 2005 or so. So, uh, you know, this is the, the beginning of his great run. Yeah. Here yeah. Larry and Charlie, you know, overlap at a certain point, but, you know, very kind of briefly. And, um, you know, Charlie kind of takes the reins from Larry at a certain point, you know, into the uh, early mid 2000s. I didn't realize that uh, I'm just looking up Larry's credits and stuff right now he played on a couple uh uh levon records uh yeah, in the like early a, 2000s and a patty scalfa record also when i saw the, the one time i saw levon helm play live larry campbell was in his band and i wow. should correct myself larry played with dylan from 97 to 2004 not okay. 2005 for all the uh 
You know, people, people are going to be checking their lists. <laughs> yes, people who are going to be leaving ratings on this podcast. <laughs> they're going to demand the utmost accuracy, so I just want to make right. sure. Well, you can't, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of the band members, and you're never going to be able to go wrong with any of the band members. I do also just have to shout out the single band member that none of us have mentioned, Tony. Tony, Tony is just holding always it holding it down. <laughs> Tony is well, the eternal ERK. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and that's why he's the top tier of on our Patreon, friends that's of right. Tony Garnier. If you're a friend of Tony, you are the most special friend of all. That's right. I, I want to uh, introduce a segment that I don't think either of you know about yet. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> this is something that I've decided is an important thing to do, and we probably should have done it earlier on, but um, I was shy. You've just decided to do it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, I haven't come up with a name for it yet, but it's, uh, it's How's the Weather? And it's, 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 um, what was the weather like that day? That's a great segment. So I and I looked it up, and um, so the high in in Los Angeles was seventy degrees. Wow, so pretty warm day. And the low was forty five. Interesting. And that's all I'm gonna. I'm not gonna get into. I don't. Maybe as this segment develops, we'll find more sophisticated ways of discerning the um, the weather and the meteor meteorology. Well, I'm 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 just gonna say that it's because it was know. so warm, Bob probably didn't see Titanic. Before Showtime, because he would have been like, "It's so nice outside. It's so beautiful out. Exactly. I don't want to be in a movie yeah. theater." Yeah, you're, this is also a man who wears like a full length leather duster in a hundred deg- degree heat. So like, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck. Who knows what his relationship to hot or cold is? <laughs> Seems kind of ambiguous. I do just love also the note, the idea that this is a, this is a hometown show for Bob Dylan. We're starting this this program off with a hometown show for Bob Dylan. Angelino, a man who has spent his, uh, you know, you uh, hometown. He's an he's an Angelino baby. He's lived in Malibu about? since yeah, the 1970s. Not... This okay, is this but... is his home. This is as close to a hometown show as Bob is ever going to get. It's not literally his hometown. It's you know, it's it's where he lives and has lived for many many years at this point. I'll just say that I live the closest to Bob Dylan's actual hometown, so and that's I think hey, I have how, authority have you, here. Have you ever been up to Hibbing, Stephen? I have been to Hibbing. Have you been to the house? I have been to his house. Wow! Yeah, you guys should come up to uh, Minnesota here. Not this time of the year, but uh, you know, seems a little seems a little cold. (laughs) We'll go for Bob's. You should come up here for Bob's uh, 82nd birthday. 82nd Hibbing coming up in May. In May, it's a beautiful time to go up to Hibbing. It'd be really nice. Um, Anyway, our next segment here is talking about. It's called talking. Talking. Not not ain't talking, but talking. (laughs) You know, or not talking World War Three. Blues, Blues or anything sure. like that. What does Bob say at the El Rey in December 2019? Excuse me, December 19th, 1997. Not too much. The most notable line is uh, uh, him uh, moving towards the encore. He states, I want to acknowledge Shell Crow, who's played earlier tonight. One of the bright luminary females on the scene. One of the bright luminary females on the scene. <laughs> that she is. That she is. It's just not the, wrong. Not wrong. The use of females just kind of rings. A, there's something like slightly off about that. Well, like on this run, like he had some really great openers. He had Willie Nelson open a show. I believe One of the great males a show. on the scene today. Jewel. Jewel opened a show. I don't think any of them actually joined Bob on stage. I think Cheryl was the only one. Yeah. I don't... So that was great, and, and again, I'm giving her. I'm gonna split my 
uh, ERK vote. Your ERK you know? ballot. And I'm giving I'm giving Cheryl, and she sounds great on uh, Highway 61. I love hearing her sing. And totally, uh, she clearly. My reference point for other artists joining Bob on stage is Bono at the Slane show in '84, where he just has absolutely no idea what lyrics he's supposed to be singing at the end of that show, and he's just shucking and jiving up there, and it sounds like dog shit. Cheryl clearly like knows these songs and has thought about them and can can do the lyrics justice. I'ma take his bed off of me I can't use it anymore It's getting dark, too dark to see And I'm here like I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Just like so many times before. I'ma put my gun. One last thing we have to talk about here is the most dramatic reinterpretation. A signature element of every never-ending tour show. Budokan mode, most dramatic reinterpretation. Now, you were very confident... I think overly confident that it's knocking on heaven's door. That was me. You clearly are are, are queuing up. You're you're stepping to the plate. You've got a you, you're you're calling your shot. Uh, you know, Evan and I had a knife fight for like twenty <laughs> minutes about Joey. Joey. <laughs> I think Joey. You want to paint my masterpiece, right? Well, okay, that would be my second choice. Okay. And but I think Joey's the number one. The yeah. Shelter from the storm, Joey. Then it's uh, when I paint my masterpiece, yeah. which is a version moment. Okay, so you think it's underrated? I, well, under I, I, under discussed maybe. It's um, I'm a little. I think we're all a little burnt out on this song. It's something I never thought was possible. But I love this song. But like this version, I think I think of this as like, I think of it as like kind of like a rocker, like big sing along type song. And this is like a really mellow version, yeah. and it picks up towards the end. But I have to say, like at first, it seemed like a little. And again, I'm 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 picking nits here because I think. 
this is a good version of, and I love this show, but like, um, I don't know if I want like a sleepy when it's I think usually sleepy, Steven. These days, the Rolling Thunder, though, like, well, I guess, but that's the I'm thing. I'm thinking of exactly. like the classic era. I and thing. I totally understand, Stephen, and I also at the same time agree with Evan. <laughs> I'm playing Peacemaker again. When I think of Masterpiece these days, I think of the the rough and rowdy version, just because I've seen that live like seven times at this point, and it's a totally distinct and dissimilar version of that song from what he was doing with it fucking 50 years ago at this point. Um, but this, the 97 version, I think, and, and I'm with you on this, is uh, a pretty radical reinterpretation of that, but at the same time, much closer to just what people expect from Bob with this song in uh, in 2022. Uh, when I'm thinking about like the more, like the rough and ready ways, just him playing piano is such yeah, a the piano element to it. Sort of like that... a quiet, honky-tonk version these days. When I pay my master in peace. This version is pretty rocking com- compared to that. I mean, there's like that like kind of shreddy guitar popping in. Like- it's way less rocking than the 70s versions, but way more rocking than the 2022 version. <laughs> is this like the medium temperature porridge then? Yeah, it's, it's not too it's, hot, it's not baby too bear. cold. Exactly. It's right but there in the that's middle. That's the thing about that song itself is that it kind of always works. It feels like it could have come from literally any point in Dylan's career. And I think that's why it's stayed around. It's like, really, you could never tell me like that song couldn't have been written in 64 because it could have and it could have been written in 2002. Like it really has everything kind of within it that you associate with a classic with essential Dylan stuff. Somehow, I think that it kind of contains a lot of um, all the parts that you would hope to see when you cut it open. Um I'm always happy to see when you pay my masterpiece. Yeah, it's, it always works. Can't fail. On the streets of Rome, I feel the rubble. Ancient footprints are everywhere. Picking up those things. Just see it bubble on a cold dark night on the Spanish turn. Got to hurry on back to my hotel room. When I got me a deal, made that pretty little girl from Greece. Where's the problem? Leave me right there with me. Last category, watchtower check. 
Do we want to do this category? What is this I, category? I want to do this category. Does the show include okay. one of the two that the most the most performed <laughs> song in the entire Bob Dylan discography ever? It's just the segment where it's is all along the Watchtower in the show. Is all along the Watchtower in the show. There must be somewhere out of here. Cause the joke is the theme. Does this show include one of the 2,268 live performances of <laughs> All Along the Watchtower by Bob Dylan. No. No. Thank goodness. Thank God. <laughs> Although, you know, I think I, there will be instances. There's one instance in particular of something that we have on our list to talk about where All Along the Watchtower will be my favorite thing. Oh, my God. Or one of my favorite things about the show. It's just one instance. But for the most part, I am fine skipping. <laughs> we can skip song. all along the last hour, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's bring it in for a close here, shall we? And uh, in true Jokerman fashion, how many stars for Bob Dylan live at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles, California, December nineteenth, nineteen ninety-seven? I think we should be a little bit more broad and just talk about this run of shows because, really, that's that's kind of what I don't know. I mean. Yes, we could be really granular, but I think that this is, uh, to me, a three-star run of shows. And I don't really feel like going in, into why one might be slightly better than the other. Because I think, really, it doesn't come down to performance. It, that's a that's just trackless preference. Because the energy feels like it's there on all of these recordings of every show. So I'll say it's three. Three stars. Steven? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, back up Evan on that in terms of talking about the entire run because uh, I do think that what you hear in these shows is Bob really, I think, rediscovering like his power as a performer. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we know as never-ending tour nerds that he was playing great tours before 1997, but it was in this sort of like underground, below the radar type thing. He wasn't really in the spotlight until he put out Time Out of Mind. And here he is in Los Angeles. You've got celebrities showing up. You've got uh, you know the outside world honoring him you know like i said he got the kennedy center honor this month he was about to get all these grammy nominations in early january and it just feels like this guy was like lazarus Mm. in 97 he's like rose from the dead and he's better than ever and just the swagger of these shows and how well he played with the band i think really makes it a landmark for Dylan and, uh, you know, the Never Ending Tour in general. So, yeah, three stars for sure for me. You're not going to get any disagreements here. This is a straight three-star sweep from Never Ending Stories. I think it really is a perfect entry point for uh, anyone interested in uh, this whole concept in general because it is, it's not Bob in jam mode, right? We're, we're past, you know, the, the wiggle mode of the early 90s. We're not quite yet into the really, like, <laughs> the really heavy blues shit of the 2000s. Like, this is, I think of all of the Never Ending Tour band stuff, at least if you're going to listen to bootleg material of it, like, this is probably the easiest to appreciate kind of sound because it just sounds like great rock music, and it is a set list full of great songs, 
And for me, again, like like I said earlier, like I, this is really a remarkable set list. I think the 19th in particular for me actually is remarkable because I never expected to uh, uh, find so much joy and excitement listening to songs like Rainy Day Women and um, Just Like a Woman, uh, which we didn't even talk about, um, or Maggie's Farm. You know, just these bog standard, you know, Bob classics that have been around since 1966. It's, um, it's, it's so thrilling for me to be able to come back to this music that I've heard one million fucking times at this point um, and still get a totally new, thrilling uh, uh, experience listening to it with totally fresh ears. Uh, and that, I think what we're all about here on Never Ending Stories. Until next time, don't you dare miss it.